Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Peter, James, and John are privileged to glimpse, even if for a moment, Jesus in all his glory. The impact is both immediate and lasting. Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series, Glory of Christ, with this sermon entitled Glory, the Cross, and Following Jesus, which covers Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, to chapter 17, verse 13. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, You'll see the scriptures on the screen uh, or on your uh, uh, computer or phone at home. And uh, you'll also find it on your app if you've downloaded the perimeter app for the message today and the outline and the passage. But uh, let's pray for a moment and then we'll have you stand and we'll look at the scriptures together. Lord, we thank you very much for your word. We ask you that you would take your word and speak to our hearts. We pray that you would forgive the sins of the one who stands here on this stage, and that uh, instead of uh, hearing anything in a sense from him, that we would hear you, that you would take your word, that you would show us the Lord Jesus, and you would draw us toward him, and you would change our hearts as a result. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Let me ask you to stand, please. By the way, the story we're about to read is uh, traditionally and usually called the Transfiguration or the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, So this is the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led, up, led them up by themselves to a high mountain. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters or tents or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Just a comment. He was still training his disciples. He also didn't want to become overly popular at this time for the wrong time and for the wrong reason. And also didn't want the authorities to take him to the cross before it was time either. So he said, wait. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has come already, and they didn't recognize him, but they've done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that when he talked about Elijah, he was talking about John the Baptist. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Thanks. Please be seated. We're now in the second week of a series on the glory of Christ. And last week, Caleb kicked us off with a great message out of John's Gospel, chapter 1, basically about this idea, that in Christ, God has revealed himself, and his glory is especially seen in his goodness, in his goodness more than anything else. Today, we pick up with this theme of glory, and today's title for today's message is this, Glory, the Cross, and Following Jesus. Glory, the Cross, and Following Jesus. That's what we want to discuss today. 
Now, I know as soon as I, I say this is what the series is about and this is what the sermon is about, I know what some of you are thinking, and you're probably thinking something like this. I can't think of anything else that would be more irrelevant to my daily life than the glory of Christ or any theme of glory. The word glory hardly ever enters my mind or glorious. It hardly ever comes out of my mouth. And that's true. The words glorious and glory are not used a lot by folks today, I'll have to admit. Probably more by women than by men, perhaps, speaking of things that are beautiful. A woman might say, oh, look at that arrangement of flowers. It's glorious. Or the fall leaves in Maine or the fall leaves in, in uh, the North Georgia mountains. That's glorious. Now, when men use the word glorious, it's usually something a little different. Maybe something like, you know, the championship won by the University of Alabama. That was glorious, you know. Something like that. And a lot of people are shaking their head at me right now. All the Auburn fans and Georgia fans. You know, men use the word a little different way. Uh, not too long ago, I was going on a, a walk in my neighborhood after dark. Neighborhood we live in uh, has a lot of different size houses, small ranches, medium-sized houses like ours, and some larger houses as well. And this is during one of those weeks recently that it was really, really cold. And while I was out on a walk that night, I noticed that one of the larger houses in our neighborhood, young family, young children, and in the foyer of, they ha of their house, they had a bouncy house. I saw the kids jumping up and down on it, and I'll have to admit, I was a little jealous, okay? When our kids were little, I would have loved to have had a bouncy house inside the house. And I thought to myself, that idea is so brilliant, it is glorious, okay? <laughs> It's glorious. That's a great idea. I'll submit to you that the word glory is actually more relevant to your life and mine than we might think at first or that might, we might want to admit. The definition of glory is this, high renown or honor by notable achievements. Renown or honor by way of achievements, or it can mean magnificence or great beauty. So I would submit to you that if you want to be known because of your appearance or because of your notable achievements, what you're really seeking is glory, right? Stop and think about one movie plot after another, too many to name. And the plot is basically about this. There's a protagonist who gets glory. He wins the day and then he wins the girl or she wins the day and she wins the competition and she wins the guy. And it, it's about the, the attainment of glory, or perhaps it's a tragic story about the loss of glory. I would submit to you that probably some of the things that you spend most of your time yearning for, desiring, fantasizing about, working toward, are in some ways aiming toward achievements that will bring you some renown, okay? So glory is actually very important. The founding pastor of our church, Randy Pope, has written a great little book for those that are investigating the Christian faith. It's called The Answer. And in that book, Randy very rightfully and biblically says, the story of the universe is the story of glory. The story of Jesus is the story of glory. And your story, my story, also relate to that. We were made for glory, we've lost it, and now in a sense, we are looking for glory in all the wrong places, okay? So is this topic of glory really all that relevant to my life, to my heart, and to my deepest desires. Is it relevant? And our answer would be, you bet it is. It is right at the center of your deepest desires, right at the center of your heart. Here's the whole idea of today's message. It is this. Any glory that we can gain from this world is fleeting and it is empty. 
But we, in fact, only find real glory that finds us in this. When we are enamored with the glory of Christ. When we are defined by the glory of Christ. When we rest in this thought and really believe it, we were not made for our own glory. We were made for his glory. And when we find ourselves by faith and repentance enamored with his glory, in awe of his glory, letting his glory be the thing that defines us, only at that time are our hearts satisfied with the glory of Jesus. That's what this message, really what this series is all about. As we talk about the transfiguration today, we're going to look at it with three different parts. We're going to merge the first two, but you could break it down into three. There's the event of the transfiguration. There's the meaning of the transfiguration, and then there's the reason for the transfiguration. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at the first two together to save a little bit of time, and we'll still spend most of our time talking about the event and the meaning of the transfiguration. But hang in there until we talk about the reason for the transfiguration, because the reason for it is what makes it all come alive and why it's relevant for us. Let's talk first about the event and the meaning of the transfiguration. What happens right here? Well, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. That was like the inner three. He had his 12 apostles, but sometimes, for reasons we really don't know, he had Peter, James, and John join him on some special occasions that the other people weren't in on, and this was one of those occasions. He takes them up on a mountain, probably Mount Hermon, that was in the northern end of Israel. Just before this, they'd been at Caesarea Philippi, and the apostle Peter had made his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and probably around that time, they, they took him, he took them up on this mountain. And while up there, this is what occurs. Basically, the veil is lifted. The curtain is drawn back. And these three gentlemen see the glory, the majesty, the brilliance of the glory of Christ. You see, in eternity past, Christ was filled with glory, just like God the Father and God the Spirit were as well. And now, resurrected, ascended, and in heaven, he is full of brilliant, bright glory, and for all eternity he will be. But while on earth, during the time of his incarnation, that glory was veiled. It was hidden behind that, that humanity of his that he had at that time. And most people did not see it. But here at this moment, for just a little while, the veil is lifted, the curtains are drawn back, and these men see it with their own eyes. What they see here is very much like the Apostle John, what he saw in the beginning of the book of Revelation. This is what he writes. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. This passage is notable in one way that the word face shows up three times that are very interesting, all in succession. It says, first of all, that this transfiguration of Jesus happened literally in their faces, right in your face, you see it. 
Secondly, Jesus' face began to shine like the sun. And thirdly, when God the Father spoke out of this brilliant cloud, these three men were so terrified, they threw themselves on their faces. What an amazing event. And so here is basically what happens. And it's a very humorous part of the story. If you don't see the humor in it, you really don't understand entirely what's happening here. This is going on. Jesus has been transfigured right in front of them. And there, Peter, who often spoke up when he didn't need to speak up, often tried to talk when nobody wanted him to talk, often tried to take charge when nobody wanted him to take charge, he speaks up. And I think perhaps he's maybe been already whispering to James and John when they realize this is Moses and Elijah. And he's probably saying something like this. See, I told you Jesus was important. I told you. Look, he's right here, and here's Moses, and here's Elijah. And what Peter is thinking is that they're all three equal. This is like saying that Jesus is just as important as Moses or Elijah. Now, now who was Moses? Moses, of course, was the man of God who led Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. And even more importantly, he was the one through whom came the law of God. To talk about Moses was to talk about the law. It was the law of God. Three big figures in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David. And Moses was one of those three. And then there was Elijah. Who was Elijah? Well, he was a prophet of God, a most notable prophet. In some ways, the coolest of all the prophets because he had some powers that other prophets didn't have. He, didn't have, he wasn't the first prophet. He didn't write a book of prophecy, this in the Bible, but he was an amazing, amazing prophet. First of all, Elijah was embattled against two of the most wicked kings of Israel, Ahab and Ahaziah. And Ahab a wife, had a wife named Jezebel, and they were also evil. Nobody names their little girls Jezebel, and she's the reason, right? Nobody uses that name. She was terrible. Ahab was terrible. Ahaziah was terrible. And Elijah was the one who was speaking truth to power and confronting them with the lordship of Yahweh. So he was the hero of the followers of God. He also had this battle against the prophets of Baal. Baal, you see, was... Uh, one of the main gods of the Canaanites. And the Israelites had started, many of them, worshiping Baal. So he had this showdown. And the prophets of Baal put out sacrifices on an altar, and Elijah put out sacrifices on an altar. And then here was the competition. You call on your God to, to call down fire, consume the sacrifice, and I, I'll do that with my God, and we'll see whose God is real. Well, the prophets of Baal went first and they put their sacrifice there and they called out to the Lord and nothing answered. I mean, to, to Baal and nothing answered, no, nothing happened. And they started cutting themselves to try to get Baal's attention and nothing happened. And they danced around trying to get Baal's attention, nothing happened. And I'll tell you what, Elijah was talking trash to them during the whole time, okay? Oh, what's happened to Baal? Where did he go? Is he out on a walk? Did he go to the bathroom? That is literally in the Hebrew text. I'm not making it up. Where's Bell? Is he in the restroom? What's going on? Why ain't, he, why ain't he doing anything? And finally they gave up, and it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah said, I'm going to make it a little bit tougher. Take all the water you can get and pour it on the sacrifices. And they did so until the trenches around the sacrifice were just filled with water. And he called out to the Lord, and fire descended and consumed the sacrifice and lapped up and evaporated all the water. And he won. He won. Elijah also at one time was taunted by some people and made fun of, so to speak, and he called down fire, and these people were destroyed. You don't mess with Elijah, okay? Just don't mess with him. And then lastly, Elijah was notable because he never died. 
Instead of dying, instead of tasting death, the Lord sent down a chariot and he was just taken up to heaven. So Elijah was sort of like the human torch or Superman or Iron Man, sort of like, you know, the prophet with the superpowers. And so for Elijah and Moses to be there, it's like, here's the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And Peter is like, I get it. Jesus is equal to Moses and Elijah. And then (laughs) the cloud descends. And then God the Father speaks. And what basically God the Father says is, no, no, no. It's not that Jesus is the same as Moses and Elijah. Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses and Elijah. These two guys, they're simply my servants, but Jesus is my son. And if you're going to listen to somebody, you listen to him. It's totally, totally different. So here's the meaning of the transfiguration that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah because, in fact, he is the greater Moses. He is the greater Elijah. That these two men of the Old Testament simply foreshadowed Jesus and they pointed toward the greatness of who he would be. Let's think about that for a moment. How in the world is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, here's how the writer of the book of Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts not on Moses, the law, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And then he says, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. There's the difference. Moses was, Jesus is. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. Moses just was in the house. Jesus ruled over the house. Last week, Caleb preached about this very story out of the Old Testament of where Jesus, or rather, where Moses would see God face to face in the tent of meeting, or he saw God on the mountain. And the face of Moses began to shine with the Shekinah glory of God. Moses' face shined with God's glory. Jesus' face shined with God's glory. But what's the difference? Here's the difference. For Moses, it was simply a reflection of God's glory, like the moon reflects the sun. For Jesus, his face was the source of that glory, like the sun itself shining. There's no comparison. Also, the shining on Moses' face faded away very quickly. The shining on Jesus' face was temporarily veiled, but now and forevermore, it shines with glory. Like Caleb said last week, the law was given through Moses. Truth and grace have become through Jesus Christ, and we have beheld his glory, says John. And indeed he did. Jesus is the greater Moses. Also consider today, Jesus is the greater Elijah. There were a couple of things that were notable about Elijah regarding death. I've already mentioned one of them, that is that Elijah himself didn't die. God just transported him right up to heaven. The second is that Elijah was the first one ever to perform the miracle of raising someone from the dead. That's another thing that made his ministry astounding. But that points ahead to Jesus. Let me tell you that story and how Jesus fits in. 
The story comes from uh, Mo, uh, rather uh, Elijah's friendship with a woman who's a widow. She was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. She lived in a city north of Israel called Zarephath. And he, she supported Elijah's ministry. She had a room that Elijah could stay in for free. And so Elijah stayed there ministering in that area. And one day, that woman's son became so ill that he died. As you can imagine, she was distraught. She was holding the body of her dead son and crying out, why has this happened? And this is what Elijah does. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. My friends, this is a foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. When Jesus was stretched out upon the cross, it was like he was stretched out upon us, eye to eye, hand upon hand, heart upon heart. And there he tasted the death that we needed to experience. He experienced it in our place, the death of our punishment for our sins. And having taken that experience of death for us, he now raises us from the dead. The resurrection of our hearts comes through what Jesus has done over us, so to speak. The resurrection we have is the resurrection of his power for us. Yes, Elijah raised one boy from the dead, but Jesus is greater. He raises from the dead every one of his followers in spirit here and someday our bodies at the end of time. Also, Elijah never tasted death, but Jesus did. In fact, Jesus died the most awful, gruesome death in the history of humanity because he died bearing the sins of his people. And even after that, God raised him from the dead. And my friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the fountainhead for every other resurrection. For all of us who will be raised to newness of life, his resurrection is the reason for that. So here's the meaning of the transfiguration. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Elijah because Jesus alone is God the Son in all of his glory. There are a couple of New Testament passages that talk explicitly about the glory of Jesus. Let me read them for you. First, from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And he's including here Moses as one of those prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And get this, verse 3. The son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then the apostle Peter remembered this event, and this is what he wrote. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us how? He has called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now there's the meaning of the transfiguration. Well, we're not done with this topic until we talk about this. What is the reason for the transfiguration? I've known the story for many, many decades, but not until I prepared this sermon did I know the reason this event happened. And it makes all the difference in the world. It meant something for Jesus, and it means something for you and me too. Let me describe it this way. One of the commentators on Matthew basically defines the book of Matthew into four parts. Part one is about his birth and his call to ministry. The last part about it is about his death and resurrection. The second of the four parts is about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. And the third of the four parts is about Jesus increasingly talking about his own suffering and death. The transfiguration happens toward the first of that third part. In Matthew 16, the apostle Peter has made his proclamation, his declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And after that, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. He starts walking toward Jerusalem and he knows it's the last time he will ever go to Jerusalem because he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be arrested, he will be flogged, he will be crucified and he knows what lies in front of him as he heads in that direction. And so increasingly in this last part of his ministry, he starts talking about his death and he starts talking about the cost of discipleship. He basically says, I'm going to die. If you want to follow me, you have to take up your own cross too. Before we see the, man, the transfiguration of Matthew 17, this is what we see in Matthew 16. This is what Jesus says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. Then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone will come after me and follow me, he must deny himself, say no to himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you want to hang on to it and control it, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. It means they're not only those who would be physically martyred, but everyone who just says, Lord, my life is not my own. I give it to you. I will lose my life and give it to you to be my master. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come again in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person for what he has done. There are two reasons this needed to happen. First is that Jesus needed it. The man, Jesus Christ, needed this. He knew he was headed toward the cross. And if you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. And he said, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, let it pass. He knew what he was headed toward. And the man, Jesus, yes, he was divine, but he was also a man. The man, Jesus, needed a team meeting. He needed his father's affirmation. He needed to hear those words again like he did at the baptism. This is my son in whom I am pleased. 
He needed Elijah. He needed Moses there as the prophets and the, the, the law, all the Old Testament, giving courage to him. And in Luke's account of the transfiguration, we find out what they talked about. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talked about Jesus' departure, it says. And by his departure, I think that meant his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. Jesus needed the transfiguration to go to the cross. The second reason this happened is that you and I need it to take up our cross. Peter, James, and John needed to see this so they would take up their crosses and follow Jesus. The 12 needed to hear about this so they could take up their crosses and follow Jesus. You and I need to know about this so that daily we can take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Back in the day and currently also, there's an organization called Worldwide Discipleship Association. And many years ago, one of their study guides, one of their Bible studies to help somebody be a disciple was on this topic, the glorified Christ. Why did they have a whole study guide? Weeks and weeks and weeks of looking at the glorified Christ. It's because of this. Following Jesus means dying to yourself. Following Jesus means being opposed by this world. Following Jesus takes the risk of persecution. Following Jesus means dying to your self-lordship and your self-salvation. And here's the truth, my friends. If you are not focused on the glory of Jesus, if you are not focused on the power of Jesus, if you are not focused on the majesty and the sovereignty of Jesus, you simply won't make it. You and I need to know about this event. You and I need to have this vision of Jesus in our hearts and minds, and we need it every day. I can sum up this message in three words, and I know you're always thankful when you can get a message down to three words. And here's the message. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is good reason to take up our cross every day. Jesus is Lord. Yes, honor Moses and listen to him. Yes, honor Elijah and listen to him. But at the end of the day, Moses Elijah, all the prophets, all of God's law, it all takes a back seat. And standing there alone is the Lord Jesus. See, you and I need to know that the lordship of Jesus is central to the good news of the gospel, and it's a non-negotiable for salvation. When Jesus comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, he refers to three things that are at the heart of the gospel. He says, first of all, in verse 9, he talks about his resurrection. The Son of Man will be raised from the dead. And then in verse 11, he talks about the restoration of all things at the end of time when he comes back. And in verse 12, he talks about his death. The Son of Man is going to suffer. His death, his, resurre his resurrection, and the restoration of all things. I want you to understand this. The reason his death is good news, the reason his death is the death of death, is because Jesus is Lord. His resurrection is the fountainhead of our resurrection. It's the reason we can be raised from the dead. And why that is true is because Jesus is Lord. And at the end of time, he will come back and he will make everything right. Everything will be just. Everything will have shalom and be what it needs to be. And he will put it all in order. Why? Because he is Lord. And his lordship is at the center of why the good news is good. You also need to know this. His lordship is a non-negotiable for salvation. It really is. 
And there's a minister in our denomination that is told about the story of what I assume would be his conversion. He says he heard a lady speak. Her name was Barbara Boyd. I assume she was like a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker or something like that. And he says, my life was changed after this talk, so I assume it was his conversion. And her topic was the Lordship of Christ. And he said she used two illustrations that I've never forgotten. The first one is this. She said, if I were to knock at your door and you were to say, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, I couldn't do that, could I? It's not like half of me is Barbara and the other half is Boyd. If you want Barbara to come in, Boyd has to come in. If you want Boyd to come in, Barbara has to come in. She said, you can't have Jesus come into your life as Savior, but keep him out as Lord. He is Savior because he's Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior. All Savior, all Lord. If he comes in, he comes in as Lord. The second illustration she used, he said he also had never forgotten. He said, as we know, the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. Now, let's imagine that, that this paper, just the thinness of this paper represents 92 million miles. He said, if that were to be true, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? That's just our galaxy. And our galaxy is just a speck of dust compared to the whole universe that can be seen through our telescopes today. And for all we know, that part of the universe that can be seen through our telescopes may just be a speck of dust compared to the whole universe. Now, here's what Barbara Boyd said that day. If Jesus is the one who made all that, and he is the one holding it all together by the power of his hand, you cannot ask him to come into your life to be your personal assistant. If he comes into your life, he comes in as the center of your life. If he comes in, he comes in as the Lord and master of your life, or he doesn't come in at all because that's who Jesus is. My friends, this is good news for us. There is good reason to die to ourselves. There's good reason to take up our cross and follow Jesus because of his glory. He is Lord of all. My friends, you need to go away from today believing this. The glory that will satisfy your heart cannot be found in any achievement or any display of beauty here on this earth. The only glory that will satisfy your heart is to be enamored with the glory of Jesus, to be enraptured with the glory of Jesus, to be delighted daily in the glory of Jesus, and to let his glory define your life. And when that happens, your heart will be satisfied. And when that happens, you'll start being transformed from glory to glory. Glory, the cross, and following Jesus, it all fits together. And that's the story of the transfiguration. Let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we do thank you and praise you that you have loved us enough to come and be one of us. And in the midst of your incarnation, we didn't see it, we didn't understand it, that you indeed are the Lord of glory. But Lord, we thank you for this instant. We thank you for this event in which the veil was pulled back and the curtain was pulled open. And through Peter, James, and John, we, we saw even at that time your great glory. We thank you that today you are seated at the right hand of God the Father and you are shining with glory and that one day you, you will come back again, not as a baby born in a manger in the Middle East, but as the Lord of glory. And we look forward to seeing you. May we today surrender our hearts to you and bow the knee before you and trust you to be our Savior and Lord 
because of who you are. May we live always for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.